Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offer plant-based nutrition made with high-quality ingredients. Each Organifi blend is science-backed to craft the most effective doses with ingredients that are organic and free of fillers and contain less than 3 grams of sugar per serving, like Organifi green juice with essential superfoods and a clinical dose of ashwagandha. It helps reduce stress and support healthy cortisol levels. Or Organifi red juice, a superfood punch that increases energy without caffeine and only 2 grams of sugar. Each Organifi blend is easy to use simply by mixing it with water or your favorite beverage while on the go, and they don't compromise quality for taste. Organifi takes pride in offering the best-tasting superfood products on the market at a price that works out to less than $3 a day. You can experience Organifi's high-quality superfoods without breaking the bank. Go to Organifi.com genius and use the code genius for 20% off your order. That's Organifi.com forward slash genius. Use code genius to get 20% off any item. Remember, www.organifi.com slash genius. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius Podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Michael K. McKenzie. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, democracy, deliberation, and future publics. Professor McKenzie holds a Ph.D. in political science from the University of British Columbia in 2013, and then a master's in political science and social studies from McGill. He worked as a policy analyst for a little while and a facilitator with the Ontario Citizens Assembly on electoral reform. Um, again, now he's at University of Pittsburgh. So we're going to talk about his work, um, you know, with democracy and deliberation and uh, collective action. So, Mike, thanks for coming. Thank you very much for having me. If you would, tell me a little bit about your history first. How did you get into the area of study you're in? And then I want to ask you about what you're doing today. Yeah, so as you said, I've been studying political science for some time, and I have a specialty in democratic theory and practice, and I'm especially interested in new institutions, new democratic institutions, or new ways of doing democracy. And uh, you mentioned that I worked for the Ontario Citizens Assembly on electoral reform, and this is really what uh, started me 
in this field. I, I, I got quite interested in new ways of doing democracy because that was an innovative project which involved 103 ordinary people like me and you who were randomly selected to participate in a nine-month critical analysis of the electoral system in Ontario. So this was really interesting and innovative. And ever since then, I've been working in this field and doing research in this area and looking at different types of democratic innovations all around the world. Oh, um, any examples of, I mean, are these contemporary examples or are they historical examples, the ones you're talking about? Yeah, so most of them are contemporary. I mentioned the Ontario Citizens Assembly, which was which was designed around an earlier assembly, which had been done in British Columbia. But this model of randomly selecting citizens in a you know fairly large group to analyze some aspect of our of our of our political system or some dimension of the po- policy process, that model has been used all around the world. It's been used since then in. Iceland to examine um, constitutional reform. It's been used in Ireland. And there are a couple of more recent examples of more permanent assemblies, for example, in the northern German-speaking region of Belgium, and also most recently in, in Paris, in France. So this sort of thing is being done all over the place and in different ways. But there are other innovative institutions as well, new ways of be, of doing democracy, new things that people are trying. Well, okay, so what, what's an example? What's an interesting uh, example that you're seeing of what people are trying and how? Yeah, so the examples of these randomly selected assemblies are what I've been looking most closely at, but there's also other models. For example, the um, participatory budgeting model, which was pioneered in Brazil, which gives people, ordinary people, an opportunity to play some role in the way that municipal budgets are distributed in Brazilian cities. So in that case, people can opt in, they can participate in neighborhood assemblies. And then from those assemblies, people are elected in order to play a role in making policy, uh, budgetary policy throughout the year. What does that mean? What does that look like? Who's going to decide and when and how? And how is this different from, let's say, any other organization, governmental, that would would make these decisions? Well, it's different because normally we elect our municipal governments to make budgetary decisions on their own. And in this case, in these Brazilian cities, anybody can show up to these meetings, these neighborhood meetings, and play a significant role in deciding how the budgets are made in these cities. So anybody who has some idea that they want to pursue or some idea that they think should be funded by the municipal government can participate, but they have to deliberate with others who have other ideas and they have to negotiate and compromise. And those groups, those groups of citizens, work with the elected officials to make the budget. In most cities, of course, elected officials just do that work on their own in conjunction with the bureaucracy. In this case, they have people participating, anybody really, participating in making significant decisions. Well, how do you pick who who participates? What if you have shills that get in there 
that are no better than, you know, than paid lobbyists that go in anyway. Sure. So participatory budgeting, as I said, is open. Anybody can go, but you have to organize to get people to to go and you have to deliberate. And the people who are are involved in the year-long process, they have to get elected by the people who come to these neighborhood meetings. So you might get people that you personally don't want to be involved in the decision, but you also have an opportunity to get people that you support involved in the making of the municipal budgets. Now, the work that I've been doing is focusing on these random randomly selected assemblies, which adopt a different approach. And in that case, people are randomly invited to participate. And those who are interested are then briefed on the process. And those who remain interested are randomly selected to these particular roles. So in that case, you might get people you don't really want, but you also get a very representative group of people that look a lot more like the public from which they're drawn. Well, was it just a random draw or how is the draw accomplished so that it's representative of what's called the public? Well, let me tell you a little bit about the Ontario Assembly as a model, because it's the one that I worked on, or it's one of the ones that I've worked on. In that case, the province of Ontario wanted to critically assess the electoral system. And they recognized that, of course, elected officials have a invested interest, a vested interest in the electoral system that elected them. And so they wanted an independent body to make an assessment of the electoral system and to judge whether or not it should be reformed. And so they had they, they essentially formed a mirror legislature. It was made up of 103 people, and there was one person randomly selected from each electoral district in the province. So the elected legislature had, at the time, 103 people, and this randomly selected body had 103 people, each selected from uh, one of the province's electoral districts. And The difference here is that because of random selection, the members of the assembly were more representative than the Ontario legislature. Stratified random selection was used to ensure that 50% of the members of the assembly were female. But the randomness of the process ensured that people of different ages, ethnic backgrounds, language groups, education levels, and religions were included as well. So this assembly met every second weekend for about nine months. So it was a a really intensive process. They they spent the fall learning about electoral systems. And I was one of the people who helped write and teach the curriculum. They then toured the province, speaking to other voters about the options for electoral reform. And they spent the spring deliberating the options and, in fact, designing an alternative electoral system for the province. So what made this process unique was that this assembly of randomly selected people were empowered to put forward a proposal for electoral reform that would in fact be voted on in a referendum. And if the referendum passed, the government was committed to implementing the assembly's proposal. So their proposal was put to a referendum. In the end, it didn't pass. 
But this is nevertheless an example of doing democracy very differently from what we're used to. The Citizens' Assembly, a randomly selected body of people, was empowered to make this real and real substantive decision for the province. Okay. So some of it was random selection. Some of it was not random. Uh, I understand, you know, what... what no, no, no. It was random. Everybody involved in the assembly was was randomly selected. Well, if it was random, then it would it, actually it was directed randomness. You know, oh, we need someone that's uh, not of the current religion, let's say, of this person on the board, and we need someone that's a woman and not a man, or a man and not a woman. So, yeah, the only, somewhat, but it was directed. So we normally call this stratified random uh, selection. So in the case of the assembly, the Ontario assembly. The only stratifications were by gender. So half the electoral districts selected a man and half of them selected a woman. And there was a provision as well made to ensure that at least one person was indigenous um, from one of the indigenous groups in the province. Other than that, the process uh, was random. And the purpose of the stratification... Well, how, how, were people, um, how, how did people throw their hat in a ring? They weren't just like, you didn't just go to their door and bang in the door and be like, hey, you're a part of this now. You know, they have to agree. So how did people choose to sign up for eligibility? So there is a pool of applicants. Uh, yeah. So the, the pool, the initial pool was the, was, is the voters list in, in the province of Ontario. Now, in Canada, you don't have to register to vote. You're automatically registered through various processes, such as through when you file your taxes or or based on the previous voter poll, uh, voter lists, rather. And so the the voters' lists are generally pretty good. They don't include everybody because people move. And, you know, some people may have moved to the province before the uh, uh, since the last election, but they're pretty good representation of, of who the voters are in the province. And so what the government did was take this voters' list of voters and randomly invite people to participate in this process. So nobody initiated their own participation and were randomly invited. Now, of course, many people didn't accept the invitation, but nevertheless, enough people accepted the invitation to make the pool of people who expressed interests very diverse. And then the 103 people who were finally selected were very diverse. They were more diverse than the provincial legislature okay i understand so they went through this process but then their decision was voted on it wasn't tested to see if this would work better than the current electoral system or not do you think that that's a a good thing or a bad thing well it was tested in the sense that it was designed by the assembly and they were informed at that point and they had deliberated with each other they'd specified the values that they're electoral system that they wanted their electoral system to realize, and they designed an electoral system that realized those values. Now, it's a whole other thing to get an entire province or state up to speed on electoral reform. Electoral reform is a difficult, in many ways, arcane discipline, and it really requires a group of political actors to support the proposal and to advance it play an active role in convincing people that this was a good option. Forming people about it is one thing, but again, whatever they've crafted or concocted, you know, that's great. But 
what about unexpected uh, you know consequences from it? Sure. Well, I mean, I, it, it sounds like it it should be tested on some level, maybe with I don't know a couple of seats in a given. Uh, you know, you, you said there was 103, so they're going to just change the law and make this en masse, and now all the new people that come in will be, be under the new rule, or are they going to test it on a few to see what you know fallout is if there is any? Yeah, I see. I see your point. So electoral systems can't really be tested in that way. You can't run an election in one part of a jurisdiction or state differently from running the election in some other part of the state. But we do know how electoral systems work based on comparative studies of different countries which do use different electoral systems. So the proposal which was made by the Ontario Citizens Assembly this randomly selected body of citizens, was the sort of system that's used, for example, currently in New Zealand. Uh, It's also being used, some version of it in Germany. And so we have examples of different electoral systems. And political scientists know quite a lot about how different political systems affect, for example, voter turnout or the number of parties within a system. But if you're going to use a system, you really have to commit to using it. And you can't really even use it temporarily because political actors can, who don't like the system can make sure it doesn't work. And if you're only using it temporarily, they, can, uh, they have an incentive to make sure that the new system doesn't work. So you do have to make a decision to run your democracies in one way or another why not to um, some extent to those reforms in order to test them? Well, I mean, why not though have people vote in, you know, one small area, let's say of a city, and they say, you know what, our we have two seats, our candidates, we want to use system B, you know, and maybe they're limited to one term and et cetera, but why not have a carve out where a certain area does test it and see? I don't know what they would look for, but you know, people agreed. Uh, but I mean, without getting into the details of this particular system, one of the objectives was to make the political system more proportional. And that means that the number of seats each party would get would be proportional to the percentage of the votes that they received in the election. And so you can't test a proportional system if it's only being used in part of the province or the state, as the case may be. So you really have to have to test these things by making the reforms. But I want to emphasize that, you know, whenever we try and reform our political systems, we're not generally going in blind. We, I think there is opportunity for experimentation and I really support experimentation because it helps us understand how these different democratic institutions might work. Nevertheless, we're not going in blind. We normally have examples of different types of electoral systems, for example, or, you know, innovative institutions, which sometimes we can try, uh, as we did in Ontario, and then use them in other places, as has been done in, for example, Iceland, as I mentioned, and Ireland, and other places. And what were some of the interesting features that came out of this uh, deliberation that you observed? Well, um, So I think what's really interesting is this idea of getting randomly selected people involved in policymaking. And this is one of the aspects of this process, which I've dealt with in other 
parts of my research. I think that there's some real opportunities to use these kinds of randomly selected assemblies in various different ways because they have features that help us make democratic decisions in ways that we're not or or in, in, in innovative ways. And so I've been thinking a lot about the challenges and possibilities of making long-term decisions in democratic systems. And uh, I think that these sorts of randomly selected legislatures or chambers or assemblies might have some role to play in helping to make our democratic systems more future-regarding. Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offer plant-based nutrition made with high-quality ingredients. Each Organifi blend is science-backed to craft the most effective doses with ingredients that are organic and free of fillers and contain less than 3 grams of sugar per serving, like Organifi green juice with essential superfoods and a clinical dose of ashwagandha. It helps reduce stress and support healthy cortisol levels. Or Organifi red juice, a superfood punch that increases energy without caffeine and only 2 grams of sugar. Each Organifi blend is easy to use simply by mixing it with water or your favorite beverage while on the go, and they don't compromise quality for taste. Organifi takes pride in offering the best-tasting superfood products on the market at a price that works out to less than $3 a day. You can experience Organifi's high-quality superfoods without breaking the bank. Go to Organifi.com genius and use the code genius for 20% off your order. That's Organifi.com forward slash genius. Use code genius to get 20% off any item. Remember, www.organifi.com slash genius. Are there any features, though, that come to mind that were really striking or interesting? From this original, from the Ontario Citizens Assembly? Yeah, from the system that this this new panel came up with. You know, I'm sure it looked maybe a lot different, maybe a little bit different from the current electoral system. So Uh, you talked about proportionality, but are there any other interesting features of it that came out that surprised even you or delighted you or had a good chance of helping? Okay, I see what you mean. The actual electoral system that they proposed um, as opposed to the assembly itself right so the the proposal for the that the elect that the ontario citizens assembly made was a version of of mixed member proportional and so the way that it would have worked was that there would be people elected from each district as we do now in Ontario, they use a system that's very similar to the system that's used in most places in the United States. Voters cast a ballot for a single person who will be their representative from their district, and the person with the most votes wins. So parts of that system would then be retained. But on top of that, there would also be some members of the assembly elected proportionally, that is based on the proportion of the votes that the party got so that the legislature as a whole would represent would be proportional the parties that got for example 10 percent of the vote would have 10 percent of the seats in the legislature so that's the system that they proposed a kind of mix of what we currently have with this uh dimension of proportionality so what's interesting about this is that the members were very interested in proportionality because they feel they felt that it was unfair for parties who got significant a significant percentage of the vote to get fewer seats 
than, than their vote would, would otherwise entitle them to, which is what happens in the current system. But the, the converse of that also happens where people get more seats than their, the percentage of the, the vote would otherwise entitle them to. And so they wanted to correct this aspect of the system. Now, there are some benefits to that. Proportional or non-proportional majoritarian systems tend to produce single-party governments, which are then empowered to act uh, without negotiating with other parties. And there's some advantages to that. But the members of this assembly felt like that the uh, disproportionality of the system should be corrected. So they proposed that. But they were also very interested in that in in proposing a system that was not difficult to understand. They didn't want a system that was difficult for voters to understand because they felt like understanding the system, how it works, what's going on, is important for the legitimacy of the system. And this is not something that I would have necessarily thought was uh, a key consideration, in part because I study electoral systems. I know a lot about them. I understand how they work. But a randomly selected group of people identified this as a potential concern, that everybody should know how the systems work. Some systems are easier to understand than others, and that the legitimacy of the system to some extent hangs on people being able to understand how the system works. And most of them think that the way that elections are done in Ontario today is relatively easy to understand. And they were worried about introducing a system that would be more difficult to understand because of this concern about legitimacy. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, if you don't understand something, you're you're open to being manipulated, I would think, far more than if you do understand it. Yeah, that's and If right. the common public doesn't understand, there's going to be people that dig in there and learn every nuance of it so they get exploited. So yeah, that's I would think right. more transparency is better, you know? Yes, is there um, a place that is that uses a system that's very similar to what you guys, uh, what the group created, so that uh, you can you can model it? Well, like I said, there were other there are other jurisdictions that have used these types of randomly selected assemblies. In fact, they're being used all over the place. Some are large. Ours had 103 people. Sometimes smaller assemblies are are used for shorter periods of time to assess policy proposals, for example. Um, So in those cases, you might have 12 or 24 people. And of course, a smaller assembly is less representative of the larger public, but it nevertheless can be quite representative and and provide some real insight into how policy might be accepted or might affect different groups within a a population. So these have been used in, in various places uh, by various governments looking at different topics. I've been involved in, for example, some assemblies looking at salmon genomics. People looked at different options for, for salmon farming and these kinds of concerns that people have. We, looked, we also ran an assembly, for example, on human tissue biobanking, where we looked at the kind of ethical and consent concerns that people had about banking human tissue for future research. I've also been involved in Massachusetts, for example, running an assembly looking at the legalization of marijuana. And so there are these different jurisdictions and 
government bureaucracies and governments using randomly selected assemblies to do policy work. Now, some of the most interesting examples of this are in Belgium and France right now. So in Belgium, a couple of years ago, they created the first permanent randomly selected assembly. And this assembly is attached to the government in the German, northern German-speaking region of Belgium. And they have a regularly rotating randomly selected membership. Now, this body doesn't have lawmaking power, but what they do is assess various issues that are relevant to the agendas that the elected governments are working on. And they have the power to initiate their own randomly selected study groups to study these issues and give governments advice. So that's really interesting because it's permanent. That is, it'll always have a randomly a rotating cast of randomly selected participants, but the institution itself will, uh, the plan is to have it exist in, in perpetuity. And most recently, just last year, Paris, the city government in Paris voted to create a similar randomly selected assembly, which will have a role in policy making at the municipal level in Paris. So that's a big deal as well. But what interesting things have come out of these uh, these bodies that's different from what you'd see from a traditional, you know, politically elected body? Well, I think you have to think about the sorts of incentives that people have, political actors have. And, the, and um, one of my concerns is the fact that, you know, political elected assemblies, although they're quite representative in many ways, um, are not as representative as these randomly selected bodies. So, for example, uh, there tend to be fewer young people elected to legislatures. The people who are elected to legislatures tend to have more money than the rest of us. They also tend to have more education than the population as a whole. They have historically been more male, um, although perhaps that'll change in the future. Um, It hasn't changed yet. It started to, but it hasn't changed yet. Women are still underrepresented. So the elected assemblies that we have are not as representative as we might want them to be. And this matters for various policymaking areas. So, for example, would we have more future regarding policy if there were more young people in legislatures? I'm not sure about that. Young people may be more future regarding on some issues and they may be less future regarding on other issues. But it is important to have different types of people in our legislatures if we're going to have legitimate policy outcomes. It looks like there's several groups around the world doing this or some form of what you're talking about. So what have been the results? You know, you can see in real time what's happened when you've chosen at random you know, let's say, you know, some levels of governing advice or at least advisory bodies. Mm-hmm. So have there been any interesting outcomes, any case studies that you can talk about that, you know, wouldn't you love to see this in action, see what it does? Yeah, well, so we do have these examples of the electoral system reform assemblies, which uh, have, we had one in British Columbia, we had one in Ontario, there was one at the time as well in the Netherlands, And uh, those assemblies tended to support 
reform towards proportional representation, in part because proportional representation distributes power and non-proportional or disproportional systems tend to concentrate power. Now, of course, people with power like to have their power concentrated, but the people who end up in these assemblies aren't normally the people with power. And so they can make judgments about these various outcomes in different ways, in ways that speak to uh, the interests of the public as a whole. So you do get examples of different kinds of uh, policy recommendations in those cases. Another example, which has had real world consequences, is this system of designing or sorry, drawing electoral boundaries in California. So as you know, many districts in the United States are gerrymandered. That means they're designed specifically to give one party an advantage over the other party. And this is a problem in many districts in the United States. Uh, it's less of a problem in other countries because most other countries use nonpartisan commissions to draw boundaries. Now, in California, they changed the boundary commission process to include some randomly selected people. Now, those people, of course, we should expect them to have partisan interests, but they didn't come into the process as partisan actors. That is, they didn't come in, they weren't selected as Democrats or Republicans. They were selected as individuals who were charged with the task of making independent judgments about whether the district is fair. Not fair for their party, not advantageous for their party, but fair in general. Is this a good district that would provide adequate representation for the people who live in this area? And does either party have an opportunity to win this district, at least in principle? And so we have seen, actually, that uh, the number of competitive districts in California has been has been growing. That is, there's fewer safe districts that are always won by one party or the other. And there's more competitive districts, in part because of this new independent boundaries commission. Yeah, and this boundaries commission includes these randomly selected uh, people. Okay. In your bio, you talked about uh, collective action. How does that play into this? Is, Is this an example of that? Or what is collective action? Uh, well, that's, I think you're thinking of the, the subtitle of my book, which is uh, Future Publics, Democracy, Deliberation, and Future Regarding Collective Action. And so what I'm doing in the book is thinking about how we can use these innovative democratic institutions to make our democratic systems more future regarding. That is to make long-term decisions better and to make it possible for diverse groups of people to act in ways that make it possible for them to achieve specific shared uh, uh, conceptions of the future. I'm not, I'm not sure I understand. I'm sorry. Is, is the act of, a, of an advisory or a governing body, is that, is that what collective action is? Or is this just individuals in a community that decide to undertake something? I mean, what, how is collective action defined in this context? Uh, so collective action is when we get together as a group and try and achieve something. So, of course, collective action is difficult because people want different things. So it's relatively easy for an individual to act. That is, if I want a particular kind of sandwich for lunch, I can, assuming I have the ingredients, make that sandwich uh, for myself. But it's difficult to achieve collective objectives. That is, how do we, for example, 
make our societies more environmentally sustainable over the long term. It's hard to get people to do all the things that we need to do. Even if we know what those things are, it's hard to get them to do the things that need to be done in order to get to that objective. So collective action is when we get together and try and achieve a particular future goal or objective. And of course, collective inaction is when we fail to do that. And we're acting in either case. We're either doing something uh, collectively and intentionally, or we're doing things inadvertently, or our individual actions are aggregated to produce outcomes that we didn't collectively decide on. But collective action is really about organizing ourselves to achieve a specific future goal. And it's difficult to do. It's difficult to get lots of people together to to act collectively to achieve something. Makes sense. I've heard a term called sortition. Is that at all what you were describing with this Ontario um, you know, advisory body or legislative body? What is sortition? Yes, that's another word for random selection. It's a word that we sometimes use in political science to describe these processes of randomly selecting people to to serve certain uh, serve in certain public offices. So sortition is just another word for random selection, and some people prefer one, and some people prefer the other term. Okay, and if if you would just just a couple more questions. I know we're, we're almost out of time. So these uh, random randomly selected advisory or governing bodies have there been examples of one that again, was in use, but negative, unexpected side, negative, unexpected consequences occurred. Something totally unexpected or unexpected that derailed it or made it seem like, uh-oh, maybe this wasn't a good idea. Like, are there any problems that you've observed with sortition type things like this? Yeah, so I think, so I, I should say that that most of these bodies that I've talked about have been largely advisory. That is, they're not making decisions, public decisions themselves. The Ontario and the British Columbia Citizens Assemblies were unique in the sense that they were empowered, but they were empowered in a very specific way. They were empowered to initiate a referendum on electoral reform, which would then be, well, which was then in both those cases subject to a a public vote on their proposal. So they were empowered, but they weren't making public decisions uh, policy decisions themselves. And in fact, none of these other assemblies have that kind of power either. The California Boundaries Commission, which includes randomly selected uh, uh, members, does have the power to uh, influence boundary commissions, which is a significant empowerment. But a lot of these other ones are advisory. That is, they give advice to other people, usually elected officials, sometimes bureaucrats who are making decisions. So it's not usually possible to say, well, okay, they really messed this one up, or or they really did a great job here, because really, as with many political processes, there's always a whole bunch of people involved and different groups involved in producing policy outcomes. Nevertheless, I think it's worth thinking about some of the potential problems with any of these systems, right? I think what people naturally do, and I support this intuition and and this approach, is that they they take new ideas and they think, well, you know, how how could those go wrong? What are some of the the problems that might be 
associated with these ideas. And I think we should be doing this. So if you take the example of the randomly selected assembly, you think, well, what are some of the things that could go wrong? Well, one of the things is that people might be selected and they may be uh, corrupted. That is, they may not have the public interest in mind. They may be doing the bidding of some other uh, entity or some other group, and uh, they may be trying to advance their own agendas and not the public, uh, the agenda of the public. Or they might not know enough about what they're talking about or voting on, or they might um, not deliberate well with others so that the group as a whole can't come to a decision or an informed deliberative decision. And so that these are all real potential problems. But the experience of these assemblies has been that people do actually learn quite a lot about what they're talking about, especially these intensive assemblies like the assemblies on electoral reform, where people spent considerable time and had access to expertise in order to learn about what they were talking about. And it is very difficult, it turns out, to compromise these systems. That is, people who might wish to influence the assembly members don't know who's going to be selected. Wealthy, for example, or corporate interests don't spend money, can't spend money supporting their election campaigns because they don't have election campaigns. And so it turns out that it's actually probably more difficult to capture and influence these kinds of assemblies. Now, that's not to say it couldn't be done. Of course, it could be done, and we should be on guard against the possibility. But the options seem to be direct bribery, which could be, of course, and is illegal in other political systems. So in terms of competence, people learn a lot. There's our experiences that there's been very little corruption, although, of course, there's less in incentive to try and corrupt the process if these assemblies are not making consequential decisions. I think the real test will be when we have examples of assemblies that are making real consequential decisions, as may be the case in Paris. We'll have to wait and see because that system is relatively new. Well, very good. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And I think what you're doing is very brave because I'm sure a lot of people want to, you know, attack it from every angle. Oh, we can't do that. We shouldn't do that. That kind of thing. So you know, I, I do appreciate that there's people like you doing this and contemplating these systems and, and trying them out. So I uh, just want to let you know that. And again, thanks for coming. If people want to follow up with you and find out your, about your work and see examples of it, where can they go? Well, they can find my website at the University of Pittsburgh. It's easy to, to find. Just look up political science and Michael McKenzie, and they should be able to find uh, all my contact information there and also all of my publications. Okay, very good. Again, okay. thanks for coming, Mike. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offer plant-based nutrition made with high-quality ingredients. Each Organifi blend is science-backed to craft the most effective doses with the ingredients that are organic and free of fillers and contain less than 3 grams of sugar per serving, like Organifi green juice, with essential superfoods and a clinical dose of ashwagandha. It helps reduce stress and support healthy cortisol levels. Or Organifi Red Juice, a superfood punch that increases energy without caffeine and only 2 grams of sugar. Each Organifi blend is easy to use simply by mixing it with water or your favorite beverage while on the go 
and they don't compromise quality for taste. Organifi takes pride in offering the best-tasting superfood products on the market at a price that works out to less than $3 a day. You can experience Organifi's high-quality superfoods without breaking the bank. Go to Organifi.com genius and use the code genius for 20% off your order. That's Organifi.com forward slash genius. Use code genius to get 20% off any item. Remember, www.organifi.com slash genius. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.